You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. We need him alive. I don't give a fuck about your war. Or your president. Is that your answer? I'm thinking about it. Think hard. In the year 1997, the entire island of Manhattan has been turned into a prison, and a criminal named Snake Plissken has to go in to rescue the president. Listen as we talk about Walt Disney's last words, getting coffee shops confused with gay bars, and the possible discovery of an Ernest Borgnine fart. Then we find out if Escape from New York stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime, the one, the only, James Snake Brief. Well, I'm the only one doing the crime here because I keep all the sponsor money that you don't know about. Right. That's way what? <laughs> yes. Uh, we're sponsored by, uh, uh, let's say, uh, Tesla. Oh, man. Can I get a free Tesla? Um, well, I have two. I mean, I guess I could ask if they give us a third one, but like, they only gave us Wait, two. Wait, you have two? Yeah, well, I, I mean, there's a weekend car and a weekday car, Al. What am I, a savage? I don't have any Teslas. I have zero Teslas. I want one Tesla. I'm pretty sure they gave our podcast two Teslas for me to try out first, and the next two are for you. Aw. I mean, could I just have one in the meantime? Well, yeah, the next one that comes. Absolutely, Al. Okay, I guess that's fair. Thank you. Yeah, we're moguls, Al. Uh, How you doing, James? I'm good, Al. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk about Escape from New York. You know, there's actually something interesting I want to bring up, and it's not quite about this movie, but is it? Um, Have you ever heard the legend of Walt Disney's last words? No, I have no idea. Please tell me. What were they? Yeah, like, apparently he was uh, maybe a little delirious, or or maybe he wasn't. This is a true story, according to legend. His final words, and no one knows exactly what he was talking about, were Kurt Russell. Really? That's what the internet says. Well, Kurt Russell had done a ton of Disney movies, and... Before he took this role as Snake Plissken, he was sort of known as like a lovable, clean cut kind of guy from all of his Disney work. Um, Was Walt Disney alive then? When did he die? Oh, I'm sure he was known as like the the kid actor Kurt Russell. Uh, But it's just an interesting like, I have one last thing that must be said. You must cast Kurt Russell in this role, like, or whatever he was trying to say. No one will ever know what he meant. I mean, were they friends? I mean, I probably knew him. He probably made movies or television shows with him. 
I just Googled it. It says, the truth is that Disney didn't actually utter the actor's name, but he did write it down. It was one of the last things he wrote in his office. So close enough. Fine. Whatever it is. Like, it's just Kurt Russell. Okay. I guess Walt Disney liked Kurt Russell. Um, That's cool. I like Kurt Russell. Um, Goldie Hawn likes Kurt Russell. A lot of people like Kurt Russell. Are you saying what I think you're saying, Al? I don't know. What do you think I'm saying? I think you're saying that you want to watch every Fast and Furious film in a row until you find, spoiler alert, a cameo by Kurt Russell. No, that is absolutely not what I was saying. And that was a very loose way of interpreting what I said. And you goddamn well know that. And you would have gotten to Fast and Furious 7 by the time you saw Kurt Russell. Okay, no, I have zero interest in any of that. But I was really interested in rewatching Escape from New York. I know that we missed the 40th anniversary. It was back in July. And I did really want to talk about this movie I remember before I saw Escape from New York, I had seen it in the video rental store a million times, and I was completely fascinated by the cover of the VHS tape, which shows you the Statue of Liberty's head on a city street of New York. And I just thought, what the hell is this movie? And, you know, I probably was fascinated by it as a kid. And I don't know how old I was before my mom let me rent the movie. It's rated R. But I remember just being really drawn to it because of that image. And, of course, in the movie, you never see that. Uh, The Statue of Liberty is totally intact in the movie. And it remains that way throughout the entire movie. Misleading poster, Al. Yes, and apparently J.J. Uh, Abrams said something similar about his experience when he was a kid, and in the movie Cloverfield, the monster knocks off the head of the Statue of Liberty, and it lands with a thud on a New York City street, and that was J.J. Abrams' homage to this movie, and specifically the, the, the poster of it, because he also thought that that was weird, that you see that on the poster, but then you watch the movie, and that's not in there. Yeah, uh, that is weird. And you know, this film, if you haven't seen it before, like me, I hadn't seen this film before. Uh, oh, ever? No, I'd never seen this film. I knew about it, and I remember when Escape from L.A. came out, and uh, I never saw either of them. So for oh. if you're like me uh, a week ago, uh, Escape from New York is a movie about a dystopian future in which the island of Manhattan has become a giant prison. And when Air Force One is hijacked and the president is taken hostage by prisoners, a convict named Snake Plissken, played by Kurt Russell, is recruited to save the president and the valuable cassette that he carries. Snake accepts the mission, but finding the president is only the beginning. Can you now escape from New York? Ooh, just like the title. Um, So this movie came out 40 years ago in the summer of 1981. I don't believe it was a big hit, right? 
You know, I was totally expecting this film to be one of these, oh, it was made for $200,000 and it grossed a little bit, but really became a cult classic on HBO and VHS sales. And if you Google the budget, it does say $6 million. But when you go into Wikipedia, there's something about how one international place agreed to finance half the budget, and that was £720,000. So maybe the budget was £1.5 million which maybe was a few million. So my guess is maybe it was a little less than six million. And I'm going to go with that. With the effects that we see, I'm going to say it was less than six million. And it grossed $25 million worldwide by the end of its run. And it had a very long run starting out slowly in New York and LA. So it actually was quite a big hit uh, relative to its budget. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. I mean, it definitely has like a low budget feel. For sure. Well, because it it has like high budget kind of sets. So with a relatively low budget, you know, you want explosions and special effects of planes, uh, you know, gliding into the World Trade Center. You're going to have to spend some bucks. That's right. So the movie takes place in a dystopian future, and it explains it all in the very beginning of the movie. Basically, it says that in 1988, there's a 400% increase in crime, which is a pretty big increase in crime. And the solution that America came to was to make the island of Manhattan a maximum security prison. Now, remember, this is New York of 1980. So this is like basically your 70s hellhole New York. And they're now saying that crime has just gotten four times worse. So civilization is probably uh, pretty much fallen in New York City and probably the United States. Right. I mean, I just couldn't understand, like, the logic of that. Like, even understanding that, okay, yeah, back then New York City was considered a high crime area. It was still like a hub of industry and finance and theater and stuff like that and still contained a lot of really valuable real estate. If you wanted to turn a New York City island into a prison, why not just do it to Staten Island? Like, wouldn't that just make way more sense? Well, I think they have to house like millions and millions of people. And I mean, I would guess that if we're thinking about it, that, you know, if you block off New York City, it's got everything it needs pretty much. It's already got the housing. It's already got plumbing, power facilities, not a power plant. It's pretty much it's got what it needs that as long as like the outside world pumps in like power and maybe like the ability for them to have plumbing, like they should be able to sustain themselves. You can't do it necessarily in Staten Island. They don't have enough housing to put like millions and millions millions and millions of people. I think really the reason why they did it is because they just wanted to show like New York City things and recognizable landmarks and you have to do Manhattan to do that. I'm just saying that like to me right out of the gate, I'm like, yeah, but that's dumb. I mean, whatever, it's fine. And then the movie explains that we are in the present of 1997. Like there's text on screen in capital letters that says now. So from a test of time perspective, it's a little bit weird watching this movie in 2021 and thinking of the year 1997 as the distant future. We kind of talked about this a little bit when we were talking about Back to the Future Part 2. Like 2015 
was supposed to be futuristic then, and it was then, but now, like, I look back on 1997, that's the year I graduated from high school. Like, that's not the far-off future, but it was 40 years ago when this movie came out. You know, if you're going to make a movie set in 1997 as the future, just go a couple numbers higher. So the 2000 thing just kind of sounds a little bit closer to the present. Like 2001, A Space Odyssey, it just sounds a lot better because it has that 2000 in there. That is my opinion. No, I I get you. But not only is the island of Manhattan a prison, but Liberty Island is like the processing area where all the prisoners get their clothes or whatever, and then they're they're sent to Manhattan. And one of these prisoners is Snake Pliskin, and he was caught, I think, uh, robbing the Federal Reserve or robbing a bank or something. They kind of say it in passing. But meanwhile, the president has been kidnapped. While he was on Air Force One, his plane was hijacked by the National Liberation Front of America, which is a play on the National Liberation Front of Vietnam, a.k.a. the Viet Cong. And the woman who hijacked the plane is seen on video and she's going on a rant and she's saying that they're fighting on behalf of the workers and the oppressed people and they're fighting against the racist police state. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, like they're fighting back against this dictatorship-like America. And I don't know, I kind of felt like they didn't really go into that too much about like these oppressed people, these oppressed workers and the, the racist police state. That caught my ear listening to it now in 2021, you know, in the wake of Black Lives Matter and things like that. And they don't really get into that in this movie. It's just sort of like a thing that this one random character says and then is kind of dropped after that. I agree with that. Uh, it's a really interesting world that they create, but they don't really talk about the politics of that outside world. You know, if this was a Tarantino film, there would definitely be monologues about it. But this is not that kind of film. Right. And uh, the government sends in a rescue team, and they're quickly met by uh, some guy that represents the inhabitants of New York, the prisoners. And he comes out and tells them that if you try any rescue, send anyone in, we're going to kill the president. And they give him the president's finger with his presidential ring on it. So that's pretty, like, badass little scene, nice little special effect they were able to make there. But yeah, so how are they going to get the president out The commissioner of this uh, police state, uh, his name is Hauk, he decides that he's going to recruit Snake Plissken to go into Manhattan and get the president out. And basically the way that he's going to ensure that Snake will go along with this plan, they say something about like, oh, you know, there's a lot of bacteria and viruses in Manhattan. He gets two injections on like each side of his neck, and then they tell him that There are these tiny capsules that are bombs, and there is a cure. They can stop it from happening, but he has to get the president out of Manhattan within 22 hours, not 24, which is a little strange. Uh, But if he does it, they'll disarm the bombs. If not, these little capsules in his neck will explode, killing him in a pretty gruesome, horrible way. Yeah, it's a pretty neat uh, little effect they do, and it totally works. You don't need any special effects here. And I think it's just a neat premise that kind of closes the plot hole of why does he just try to escape New York on his own. They're like, don't you want to do your duty and do it? And he's like, I don't give a fuck about your president. And when they're like, but the president will die, we'll get yourself a new president. He's got a lot of great one-liners. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's also a recurring thing where Hauk keeps calling him Pliskin, and he says, call me Snake. That's his nickname, and, and uh, you know, he just kind of says that over and over again. There's also this element about the president is carrying something, and we see that he's got a briefcase attached to his hand, and they say that there's a cassette tape in there that has something to do with nuclear fusion, and they don't really explain it really at all throughout the movie, certainly not in the beginning. They just kind of say, well, it's nuclear fusion and it's, well, it's nothing you care about, Snake, which is true. But like for the audience, like I kind of wanted to know what was in the briefcase and what was on the tape. And I wouldn't have minded, you know, a line or two just explaining why this MacGuffin is so important, you know? Yeah, and the timing of the MacGuffin, it, it has to do something with the fact that there's some international summit with, uh, I don't know, is it China and the Soviet Union? And yeah. uh, they somehow have to get this to them while they're at the summit. Like, it's not really made clear, like, why can't they just call them the next day? Like, it really doesn't make sense, like, why it's so time sensitive. Whereas it could have been something like, there's a bomb and we need to get this out in time. Something 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 but whatever they got to capture this uh cassette and it's in the uh briefcase attached to the president right and so the way that they are going to get snake into the city is he is going to fly this very small very quiet glider and where is he going to land he's going to land on the roof of the world trade center now obviously this kind of doesn't work from a test of time perspective for a lot of reasons. One, the fact that the World Trade Center towers no longer stand. Two, the fact that they want to fly a plane onto the top of the World Trade Center, you know, in a post 9-11 world, just instantly, I just kind of went, you know, like you just kind of had like a, a gut reaction to that. I mean, honestly, even before this in the movie where that plane is hijacked it seems like the terrorist who hijacked that plane was planning to just crash it into Manhattan and, you know, the president escapes from an escape pod. But it seemed like she just wanted to fly the plane into a building and kill the president and everyone on board. And, you know, in a post 9-11 world, all of this just feels like icky and wrong. And of course, John Carpenter, when he made this movie in 1981, wasn't thinking about any of these things. He had no idea what was going to happen in 2001, but it just really doesn't sit right. Well, the one saving grace of it is that this is not a movie that takes place in 2182 and New York is dystopian and the World Trade Center is where the king lives because... Obviously, that's not where someone's going to live. There's no Twin Towers. But this film does take place in 1997. So, in a way, they by chance got away with the fact that it does hold up there. I actually didn't think of it, the, the glider landing on top of the World Trade Center, as the 9-11 reference. I thought of it more as the uh, Air Force One. We see it on a computer screen crashing into a building. That, to me, was a lot more of a 9-11 uh, you know, foreshadowing, uh, unfortunate foreshadowing. But, yeah, sure. they, they land the glider on the World Trade Center. It's pretty corny special effects every time they try to do anything with a glider but you know it's one yes. of those like you did your best but either way he lands on the world trade center and he's now tracking the president by some kind of tracker and he goes down and he gets to this musical theater 
Right. It's a live show, like Broadway or off-Broadway kind of a thing. But the song and dance is all about how it's really fun there. You get to kill whoever you want. It's like the criminal version of a Broadway show. And there's someone who recognizes Snake. It's this character named Cabby who drives a cab. Uh, he's played by Ernest Borgnine, a famous actor. Don't ask me to name other things that he's been in because I don't really know off the top of my head. Um, but like while Snake is looking for the president, he walks by this like rape in progress. There's like these two guys who are assaulting this woman and he just kind of like sees it, looks at him, Keeps on going, like looking for the beep, beep, beep of the president's tracker. The president's tracker is on some random old guy who's just delirious. And then Snake leaves. And I was like, you know, that's kind of a missed opportunity. They could have made Snake like a more likable character if he saw this thing happening and he stopped it. And he went to fight these guys and protect this woman. And he just doesn't bother. I agree uh, with what you're saying, but I think the point of that was more to show like what a hellhole New York is rather than an opportunity for Snake to be a hero, which I agree. It could have been been both. I agree. It should have been both. But it's a dead end with the tracker. Snake leaves the theater. He's walking around. He goes into a chock full of nuts, which is the name of a coffee company and also i guess they had coffee shops named chock full of nuts apparently yes and i have a a funny story about that um so in new york city there are a lot of gay bars that will often have a little uh euphemism like there's one that has it's just a picture of a rooster uh, on the outside and yeah it it is called a cock uh you know it's one of those things and i was with my cousin who's not from the states and i was showing him and like you're walking through the village and once in a while i'd point out uh you know there's there's that bar and here's this famous bar and this famous bar and he says oh is that a gay bar and there was a big sign and the sign outside of it said chock full of nuts and i was like no that's a coffee shop and i always thought that was funny so whenever i see chock full of nuts i think of the time my cousin thought that that was a gay bar that is funny and did you go in do you know for a fact that it wasn't a gay bar Yes, it was like around the corner from uh, where my apartment is. I think it's out of business now, but it was just a regular coffee shop. Oh, okay. Well, while Snake is in this chock full of nuts, he meets a woman. Apparently, this woman was Kurt Russell's wife in real life at the time. This was before he got together with Goldie Hawn. But uh, she's just kind of like pulled under the floor like after they talk for three seconds. It's weird because, again— Snake doesn't really rescue her or try to help her in any way. He just leaves. It's a bizarre scene. It kind of just seems like she's only there because she is Kurt Russell's wife, maybe. That's just why that character exists in that one scene. But after Snake leaves, Cabby comes by and he gives him a ride in his taxi. And Cabby tells Snake that the president is being held by the Duke. The Duke is the guy who runs New York. He is the boss in charge. And Snake says, well, you got to take me to the Duke. Cabby's like, well, I can't really do that. But instead, I'll take you to meet Brain. And Brain is basically like the Duke's advisor. And not surprisingly, they call him Brain because he's very smart. 
And I want to ask you something, James. When Cabby brings Snake in to meet Brain, he's in the public library and he's like, hey, Brain, it's me, Cabby. I brought Snake Plissken. He's here to see you. And I could have sworn that when Cabby sits down in the couch, there's like a fart sound. And I rewound it like five times. It really just sounds like Ernest Borgnine farted and they just couldn't edit it out or something. Did, did you hear that at all? I didn't, but couldn't it just be one of those couch sounds? It could be. It could also be the noise of like the refinery in the background because apparently Brain has like a mini oil refinery there. He makes power for the island and that's why the Duke likes him. Maybe that's what it was supposed to be, but it just, it sounded like a fart. I don't know if like this video clips on YouTube, but if you have HBO Max, if you watch this movie, pay attention at that point because it really sounded to me like a fart. I Googled it and no one had written anything. Like usually you can find like some Reddit post of like, hey, did Ernest Borgnine fart in Escape from New York? Like anytime I think think I have an original thought. There's a million other people who have written about it online. I didn't see anything about this. Maybe I discovered a fart. And the Wikipedia entry will will say, if it's accurate, first discovered by Alan Noah of the Test of Time podcast. (laughs) It's the big break we've been waiting for. Right. Like there's always like one person that was like the first person to actually coin the term Generation X was Sidney Smith for People Magazine. You know, you could be the person that that discovered, did Ernest Borgnine really fart? (laughs) And, And I mean, you know, Ernest Borgnine is no longer with us, so we can't ask him, unfortunately. Maybe John Carpenter would know. Or Kurt Would, yeah, but, but even if he was with us, if I said to you, Al, uh, 32 years ago, I think you might have farted on this couch. Did you fart? <laughs> Let me check my log of every fart I've ever had. No, but you'd remember if you watch the movie, if you're Ernest Borgnine and you farted on set that day and then you were watching the movie a couple months later, you're like, oh, they picked up the audio of me farting. Uh Uh-oh. Like, you're going to know that. Like, you're going to (laughs) remember. Years later, you're going to remember that. If it was a particularly bad uh, gastrointestinal day for him, then possibly he'd remember that. Possibly. Um, But also, (laughs) Brain has, like, made... Oh, look at you. You're really cracking up about this one. (laughs) This is what gets you, Ernest Borgnine farting. <laughs> the like your discovery of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, this is what I'm here for. Um, but anyway, back to the plot of the movie. Basically, Brain has discovered where all of the mines are on one of the bridges out of the city. And they say that, you know, like there's walls erected around the island of Manhattan. They mined all of the bridges, which I was like, well, why would they mine the bridges and not just blow up the bridges? Like, wouldn't that be an easier way to keep people on the island? Well, I think you keep the bridges because sometimes you need to send people in there, like new prisoners and that stuff. I think a bridge is very easy to keep track of who's going across it. Fair. But did it bother you the name of this bridge? Like, I definitely rewound it the first time that they said it. They're talking about all of the mines on the 69th Street Bridge. And there is no 69th Street Bridge. There's a 59th Street Bridge, but no 69th Street Bridge. Well, there isn't a 59th Street Bridge anymore because it's the Mayor Edward Koch Bridge. Right. But it's at 
59th Street. And listen, I appreciate a good 69 joke as much as the next guy. I I can be like Bill and Ted, you know, like 69, dude. (laughs) But it's just a weird thing to get wrong. Like, why not just call it the 59th Street Bridge? I don't know. Or maybe they misheard it. And But it is definitely a jarring to a New Yorker. Uh, but we, we do meet finally the Duke. And I love the Duke's car. It's this stretch, like, town car, limo kind of thing. But it has actual chandeliers dangling from the outside of this car. Like, it's fantastic. Yeah, it is very, very cool. And the Duke is played by Isaac Hayes. The man behind the Shaft theme song, the man behind Chef on South Park, and he's a total badass. He's great. But once Brain tells Snake where the Duke is holding the president, Snake goes to rescue the president. And that rescue scene, like it happens really quick where Snake goes into the room Uh, where the president's being held, or actually it's not a room, it's like a train car, like all the way on the west side. And the guy who's guarding the president shoots Snake in the leg with like an arrow. And then Snake throws a knife like directly into the guy's head. And it's dark and it happens really fast. And it's not totally clear what's happening. I think it was just cut very quickly, probably because of a limited budget. But that was another scene that I kind of had to rewind just to be like, wait, what just happened? Yeah, and one thing that bothered me about this was there's handcuffs here. And handcuffs are supposed to be notoriously the easiest thing to pick. And like uh, it's taking these guys that long to pick the briefcase off the president's arm. Yeah, well, they never actually do. Eventually, the Duke shoots it off because after Snake, quote unquote, rescues the president, he's very quickly captured and the Duke has the president again. Then the Duke is basically just firing his gun at the president kind of like for fun. We should mention, by the way, who the president is. Did you recognize that actor that plays the president? No. It's Donald Pleasance, uh, who I recognized as Loomis from the Halloween movies. You know, he was in the first Halloween movie that we reviewed with our friend Bruce Edwards, and he was in a lot of the sequels. Yeah, I didn't recognize him. Also, he kind of speaks with a British accent, and apparently he, like, created some backstory that America was having problems in the future, and they rejoined the British Empire, and that's why the president can have a British accent, and Donald Pleasance told this to John Carpenter, and he's like, how about that? And John Carpenter was like, that's interesting. How about we just never mention the fact that you have an accent? And that's what they ultimately did. It's not too thick of an accent where it's distracting, I didn't think. No, no. And the Duke, basically, he's not just uh, some crazy uh, criminal leader. He actually has uh, an idea. The reason why they kidnapped the president is they want to trade the president for amnesty. Like, they want to walk out of their prison. So they basically say, we're going to walk across the bridge and you're going to get your president back. Right. But there's also this matter of what should they do with Snake? And the Duke basically is going to execute Snake by having him fight this big, huge guy in like a a very public boxing match, except it's not boxing because they're fighting with baseball bats with nails in them and they're using garbage cans as shields. Apparently, the character's name is Slag, uh, but this guy is huge. He towers over Snake and 
I thought the fight was choreographed weird. Like after they're going for a little bit, you can see like lines on the other guy's face. Like it looks like Snake hit him in the face with like this bat with the nails on it. But like, I don't think I saw that happen. Like maybe that was just a weird cut or something or I don't know. Did I miss that? I agree with you that the choreography or maybe the editing is not done right because I actually rewound not the part you're talking about, but I rewound basically the final punch, which is Pliskin is on the ground. And I guess he hits the guy with his nail club, like maybe in the knee or the groin. And the guy goes, oh, and kind of like momentarily pauses. And Snake takes that moment to like whack him on the back of the head with the club nail and kills him. I thought he hit him in the belly, but yeah, like he hits him in the belly once the guy doubles over and then he hits him again in the back of the head and kills him. And this whole fight scene takes place. I think it's supposed to be Grand Central and there's a million people watching and they're all cheering for Snake to die. But then when Snake wins, the whole crowd starts cheering Snake, 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 because he was an underdog. He won and, you know, they're going to root for him. Yeah, it's reminiscent of a lot of these kind of uh, fight things. Uh, You've seen it in modern films like Thor Ragnarok and Gladiator. Oh, you said it. You said the thing. He said the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's your classic trope of winning over the crowd with an athletic performance. And he does that. And at the same time this is going on, Brain and Maggie, they rescue the president and they kill Duke's second in command, this guy named Romero. They make their way to the top of the World Trade Center where the glider is, and they're going to try to somehow, like, release the glider and hope it just, you know, glides them to safety across the river to Jersey, I guess. But the bad guys on the island, they're able to kind of toss the glider over the side of the World Trade Center. Another really iffy uh, special effect there. Oh, it's so bad. It's yeah, so bad. It's it's really bad. It looks like a toy falling off of, like, a table or something it really looks bad also who are these bad guys on the top of the world trade center like at one point brain says to the president sorry mr president these redskins are savages like wait are they supposed to be native americans like what why are they on the top of the world trade center huh they don't explain who they are, but the glider is destroyed, and once again, uh, they're captured by the Duke, but then they uh, escape again. Like, there's a lot of times that they get captured, and and uh, the capturing people just don't kill them, and uh, Snake and whoever's captured is able to escape once again. And, like, this all happens very quickly, where they go up and down all the way like on the World Trade Center and like Snake literally has a ticking clock on his wrist of like he has to complete this mission in 22 hours or he will die and they say that there's a freight elevator that still works in the World Trade Center but it only goes to floor 50 so they still have to climb up and down 50 flights of stairs that's a lot And Snake has an injured leg. They've got the president who, you know, has been kidnapped for hours and has been shot at and has had his fingers cut off. Like, this is going to be like a difficult trek. But it's like, oh, we're at the top of the World Trade Center. Oh, the bad guys destroy their glider. Oh, now we're at the bottom. Oh, now the Duke's here. Like, this would all take time. And we really don't get like the passage of that time at all. I agree. It doesn't really make any sense there. But uh, when they're being chased, they decide to go across the 69th Street Bridge and they get into a car chase and the Duke is behind them. And 
while they're being chased, uh, Cabby lets it be known to the to the group that he has the cassette. He had gotten it from Romero before Romero was killed, and they put the cassette in, and you could hear it's some professor-like guy talking about uh, nuclear fusion and blah, blah, blah. It's the president, isn't it? It's the president, or I thought it was a scientist or something. But uh, either way, the president demands the cassette, and Snake's like, yeah, right, and Snake uh, keeps it for himself. And the cab crashes, and Cabby... Gabby dies. Uh, the, the rest of them decide to get out of the car and run. And there's, uh, I don't know, it's, I think it's a mine or a mortar fire. Something explodes on the bridge and uh, Brain is killed. It's a mine because they said that the bridge is mined and only Brain knows how to get across the bridge. But it's also like weird because only Brain knows. And as they're driving, he's like, okay, now turn left. Like, why now? Like, he's not, like, reading a map or anything. Like, how does he know exactly where these landmines are? And he apparently doesn't know because he he gets blown up. And then after he gets blown up, the president and Snake just kind of hoof it the rest of the way. And they make it. So it doesn't seem like this bridge is, like, very well-mined or something. I mean, like, it's supposed to be just, like, a gauntlet of death. But it really seems like... Yeah, you can pretty much make it if you just don't happen to stand in a couple of wrong spaces, you know? I don't understand how mines under blacktop work anyway, unless they're sensitive to, like, cars, in which case, I don't know why Brain activated it. But um, they don't all make it because uh, after Brain is killed, Maggie, she's so distraught that as Duke is just plowing down the street, she just decides to empty her entire magazine into him and she makes a valiant effort but unfortunately uh she's run over and the duke is now chasing uh snake on foot the president has now escaped uh he's he's mostly on the way uh to freedom the rescue team has been murdered uh i think the duke kills all of them yeah uh, but uh the president himself is still alive and snake is on the rope but the president stops the rope from dragging snake up and Duke is just about to murder Snake on when the president himself, he decides to murder Duke. And I don't think he's trying to do it to be nice to Snake in any way, but this is the guy that cut off his finger. And this guy's like, yeah, you're number one, Duke, just as he kills him. Yeah, the, the Duke was torturing the president and, you know, was like firing his gun at him and making him say, you're the Duke, you're a number one. I mean, I just think of uh, New York, New York by Frank Sinatra, you know, when I hear that. So then when the president shoots him, he's like, oh, look at you. You're a number one. Duh, 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 duh. You know, like, ha ha, I, I got him. It's purely revenge. But the president then brings Snake up over the wall. The doctor guy is there. He gives Snake the injection that's going to stop the bombs from blowing up in his neck just in the nick of time. And right from there, the president's going to give this press conference that he was going to do at this summit in Connecticut that he was on his way to when this plane was hijacked. And the president says to Snake, you know, thank you. I really appreciate it. Anything you want, it's yours. And Snake just says, I just want to know how you feel about all the people that died to rescue you. And the president just gives like a very like cliche run-of-the-mill answer where he's like, I appreciate their sacrifice. It was done for the greater good of the country. And Snake is very clearly disgusted by this answer, and that motivates him to do his final revenge on this president. 
So he decides to walk away. And as he's walking away, uh, Commander Hawk, he actually uh, stops him and he's like, Snake, you were pretty good. Uh, I want to offer you a job. Actually, the first thing he does is he goes, I thought you said you were going to kill me because that's what Snake said. And he has a great one-liner. And he just uh, kind of starts walking past Hawk and he goes, too tired. Maybe later. <laughs> it's great. But uh, he turns down the job, the job offer, and the president, he's going to play this nuclear fusion, this uh, this cassette that's going to, you know, something, something, change the world or whatever. And he puts on the cassette, and it turns out it was Cabby's uh, music tape. And Snake had done some kind of switcheroo, so Snake is holding the cassette. And the last scene, he destroys it. And fuck you to the man. Right. It's kind of like a cool badass thing i guess but we also don't know if it really is badass because we don't know what it is that he's destroyed like what was this tape was the president going to share nuclear fusion technology with the other powers of the world and that was going to save the world apparently in the novelization it was meant to be like a threat that America had uncovered the secret of fusion that was going to allow us to create some huge bomb and therefore the rest of the world better back off or something. But we don't know what it is. And then Snake destroys this tape and it's like, okay, cool. But also, could this information be replicated in some way? If it was the president saying it, doesn't he know the contents? Couldn't he just say it again? Why is this tape so important? And we don't know, and it's weird, and I'm thinking back to The Saint, the movie we talked about with our friend Darren from the Board Games Are For Losers podcast, and I critiqued that movie because they didn't shut up about Cold Fusion, and that was really annoying. And, you know, I'm not saying that they should have been talking about nuclear fusion this whole movie, but really, just a couple of sentences to explain what this tape was would have really gone a long way, especially here at the end. Well, that's true. They didn't explain that. But the film as a whole, Al, this film is 40 years old. Does this 40-year-old movie stand the test of time? Um, There's a lot that really doesn't. The World Trade Center and the crashing a plane into a skyscraper in New York City, all of that stuff really doesn't. The fact that Snake doesn't care about the rape, that he watches a woman get pulled underground and is just like, eh, bummer. And... I think what's cool about this movie is that it's got like a cool concept, right? It's like a a high concept. In the future, there's so much crime that Manhattan is turned into a prison. Like, okay, cool. But like they don't really get into like the politics of it. I also think that based on today's political climate, a story like this wouldn't work. It's basically a Republican talking point now that cities are so overrun with crime. And for a movie to kind of say the cities of of the future become literal prisons, I just can't imagine liberal Hollywood greenlighting a movie where that's a main plot point. Um, I think the idea of a president being kidnapped would also be a little too political in our world today, which is awful and terrible that it would be that that I think audience members would be like, well, what party is this president? Hmm? You know, even if it's a fictional party in a fictional future, I still think it would rub people the wrong way. Um, This is a little bit neither here nor there, but George Carlin has a routine about turning different states into prisons. Basically, he just says that all the states that are squares 
you know, or like rectangles should be prisons like Kansas and Utah and uh, uh, Colorado. I don't know which came first, this movie or that George Carlin routine. But I don't think this movie stands the test of time. It's just not executed well. I think it's a shame. I think it really could have been awesome. I think the name Snake Plissken is really cool. And I think Kurt Russell is such a badass. And I really love like the idea of it, but it's just not executed well. So I'm going to say that it doesn't stand the test of time. What do you think, James? Well, I'd never seen this film, and uh, it's really important that I uh, say that the budget of this film is low. And I don't know whether it was $6 million, whether it was a couple million dollars, but this is a very low-budget film. And I think it's a low-budget film to its benefit. Like Something like Clerks is a low-budget film that benefits from being low-budget. And, you know, this film was probably not filmed in New York. I mean, there's barely anything recognizably New York in it. It wasn't. Yeah, I mean, they make references to big landmarks. You know, they have an establishing shot of the World Trade Center. And then, like, I noticed that the top of the World Trade Center looks like the top of any random apartment building with like your random like exhaust pipes coming out like the top of the World Trade Center was like a tourist thing like uh, you can go to the roof deck and everything and you know, it didn't look like it had your like little elevator shaft house sticking up at the top but obviously this film was very low budget and I think that because of that That allows me to forgive things like the really shoddy special effects. But the things that really work in this film, Snake Plissken is really cool. That might be one of the coolest names of a lead character, like a badass character ever. Snake. Like, that's awesome. Uh, Kurt Russell's great. His outfit is perfect. The patch. A film today would need you to explain why he has a patch. Like, what happened to his eye? They don't mention it. It's just a badass patch. And I like the side characters, although, you know, they they kind of come and go. So except for Cabby, I don't really know any of them. The bad guy, Duke, uh, he he works for me. He's one of these guys more like from the 70s. And the film reminds me of, uh, you know, a lot of these dystopian future things. But really the low budget of it, I kind of think found it charming. The fight, I found it pretty thrilling. It's just clubbing each other to death, and that worked. If there's one, like, digital medium that was probably the worst way to record data, it was cassettes. Like, oh, or yeah. is it even digital? Is it analog? Whatever it is. Like, it was the lamest one. You know, today we still have records. We'll have some form of, of disc for a long time, but it just cassettes are so lame. Pliskin is great. I love at the end, we didn't mention it, but he he's telling people, call me snake call me snake but when uh commander hawk offers him that job and he's like snake don't you want a, the job and he's like no and call me pliskin like only my friends get to call me snake like his one-liners are great and in the low budgetness of it i actually i liked it i'd never seen this film before and i was into it so on that criteria i'm gonna say the film does stand up while recognizing a lot of the flaws that you see i just wasn't bothered by them enough to say that this film uh, doesn't work. And I allowed a lot of those flaws to be uh, forgiven because of its low budgetness. I see what you're saying. I think you can be forgiving of the movie's low budget. I mean, there are certain shots that like, not only do they scream low budget, but they also just scream like poorly done. There's one point where 
Hulk is in the command center, and behind him is just a panel of, like, blinking light bulbs. It's not supposed to be a computer. It's not supposed to convey any data or information. It's just, like, a square of, like, 16 by 16 light bulbs that are just kind of flashing on and off. And it's like, why is that futuristic? Like, what about that is relevant? Why would you need that in a command center? It's just weird. Like, stuff like that does bother me. Like, not only is the cassette weird because of all the reasons I was saying, it is weird because of the reasons you were saying. Like, why would it be on a cassette? In 1981, I guess they thought cassettes would still be a thing in 1997. We know that they weren't. It's just a lot of things like that just really kind of bothered me. But maybe I will feel differently about its sequel, Escape from L.A. It came out 15 years later, and we will talk about that movie next week. Until then, please write to us. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know your thoughts about Snake Plissken and Escape from New York. And if you think Ernest Borgnine farted in that one scene, let us know. Go to HBO Max. Find that moment, listen carefully, and write. Hashtag did Ernest Borgnine fart. We're going to get this trending. (laughs) Come on, people. We can do it. This is the worst hashtag literally ever. Does anyone know how to spell Ernest Borgnine? But we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye, everyone.